Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everybody. This is Christopher Bandini, one of your hosts of New Books in Psychoanalysis. And today we are going to be here with the, um, with the editors of, the, of two volumes uh, about interpersonal psychoanalysis, Donald Stern and Erwin Hirsch. Uh, I'm going to give their introductions first, and then we'll speak about their books, uh, volumes one and two. The Interpersonal Perspective in Psychoanalysis, the 1960s to the 1990s, Rethinking Transference and Countertransference, and Further Developments in Interpersonal Psychoanalysis, 1980s to 2010s, Evolving Interest in the Analyst's Subjectivity, uh, and those are both in Rutledge. So uh, first, uh, Dr. Erwin Hirsch is a faculty supervisor and former director of the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis. He's a distinguished visiting faculty at the William Allison White Institute. Adjunct Professor of Psychology and Supervisor, Postgraduate Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis at Adelphi University. Uh, Clinical Adjunct Professor of Psychology and Supervisor, Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis at New York University. Uh, Faculty and Supervisor at the National Training Institute, National Institute for the Psychotherapies. Uh, Editorial Board for Contemporary Psychoanalysis, Psychoanalytic Dialogues, and Psychoanalytic Perspectives. He is the author of over 80 psychoanalytic articles, chapters, and reviews, and four books. Uh, including the 2008 Guther Award-winning Coasting in the Countertransference, Conflicts of Self-Interest Between Analyst and Patient. And now on to uh, Dr. Donald Stern, who is the Training and Supervising Analyst at the William Allenson White Institute in New York City. He's the Clinical Consultant and Adjunct Clinical Professor of Psychology at the NYU Postdoctoral Program in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and Faculty, New York Psychoanalytic Institute. He is the founder and editor of a book series at Rutledge, Psychoanalysis in a New Key, which is about 50 books in print and another 15 in various stages of completion. He is the former editor-in-chief of Contemporary Psychoanalysis. He has written many articles and book chapters and four books on formulated experience from dissociation to imagination in psychoanalysis. Partners in Thought, Working with Unformulated Experience, Dissociation and Enactment, Relational Freedom, Emergent Properties of the Interpersonal Field, The Infinity of the Unsaid, Unformulated Experience, Language, and the Nonverbal. He is also the co-editor of Pioneers of Interpersonal Psychoanalysis and the Handbook of Interpersonal Psychoanalysis. Uh, He serves as the Associate Editor of Psychoanalytic Dialogues and is a member of the editorial boards of Psychoanalytic Inquiry, Psychoanalytic Psychology, the Psychoanalytic Quarterly, and the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Institute. He is in private practice in New York City. I hope we have enough time for the interview after those lengthy introductions, a very formidable uh, two gentlemen that I'm here with today to speak about their uh, important volumes on interpersonal uh, psychoanalysis. Um, so as we are accustomed to doing here on this podcast, we usually ask uh, how you came to write this book, these books, two of them. Well, Don, uh, well Erwin, how do you want to go about this? Well, Shall you, I say you, how it started? You, you wrote the book proposal to initiate it. So why don't you start, and I'll add if there's anything to add, okay? Okay. So I, I you know, I, I thought years ago, that there was a book, um, one of the books that you mentioned in going through that, that introduction, 
uh, which Chris, I would say, was generous, except we wrote them. <laughs> the uh, One of the books that you mentioned is called Pioneers of Interpersonal Psychoanalysis, and I co-edited that, co-edited that book with a number of other people back in, I think it was published in 95, and the format of that book was that we... We took the first generation of interpersonal psychoanalysts, and each of, and we took one paper from each of those people, a classic paper, and we had uh, current interpersonalists of that day write prologues for uh, the the papers that we published in the book. So each paper was accompanied by a prologue. Um, and some years ago, it occurred to me, you know, that interpersonal psychoanalysis isn't as well known as I would like it to be in the world at large, and that it would make sense to do similar books um, about uh, the later generations, more more contemporary generations of interpersonal psychoanalysts. So that's what we did. Uh, I wrote a proposal, I don't know, it's been a number of years ago now, um, for uh, Routledge, um, uh, in which that same idea was proposed uh, for for two different generations it, roughly, they're overlapping. One of them was the 1960s to the, to the what was it, 1990s or one, and the other one yeah. is uh, the other one is 1980s to the 2010s. And we did the same thing. Um, you know, I I had set up a, a table of contents, but eventually, what happened is that I was complaining one day to Irwin, uh, who's a good friend, and was just saying, you know, uh, I don't know how I'm ever going to get this done. And he had the bright idea, let's do it together. So I thought, gee, that's a good idea. It's an interpersonal uh, idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it would never have gotten done had Irwin not um, not had that comment, because I don't know that I ever would have done it by myself. Uh, and we, we rejiggered the, the, um, the table of contents, you know, to reflect Irwin's interests as well as mine. And we agreed that uh, to begin with, it was, I think it was going to be, no, I guess it was always going to be two volumes. And the way we we did it was in the first volume, I wrote the introductory, there's an introductory chapter for the whole book. And then uh, Irwin wrote the prologues, one for each paper all the way through the book. And then the second book, we, we just reversed roles. So Irwin wrote the introduction, then I wrote the prologues for each each chapter. Erwin, you got something you might want to add there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Don, see, we, we had discussed this a number of years ago when Don has so many irons in the fire and is so active in writing and being on editorial boards. He forgot that we had long ago talked about doing such a doing such a book. And so when I heard he was playing it, I said, hey, we once talked about this. Oh in. yeah, I'd forgotten it even until now to tell you the yeah. truth. Yeah, I said I, I I want in. Plus, he was saying that he was so overwhelmed with with obligations that he might not ever do it. And so, uh, fueled by uh, by uh, uh, obsessive compulsive uh, amb- ambitions and uh, getting things done quickly, uh, we started to do it together and and uh, you know made made some changes in in the. Uh, Articles that we we chose. I mean, the the underlying reason for both of us is is that that each of us felt that the inter, the, the the importance of the interpersonal tradition in in contemporary psychoanalysis uh, 
is, is just under-recognized. And uh, the hope was that, you know, Don's hope with that other book in 1995 is that it would, uh, those contributions would be more recognized. And, and, uh, and our hope for these two volumes is that more people will recognize how much relational psychoanalysis and contemporary psychoanalysis in general uh, is, is so powerfully influenced by the interpersonal tradition. Maybe it would be helpful to to go back. There was classical psychoanalysis. We were talking at the beginning of the 20th century. And along uh, comes uh, Harry Stack Sullivan. Now, people may not be familiar of how the interpersonal tradition developed alongside of the classical tradition, if you can speak to that. Uh, Erwin, you want to? Okay. Uh, it was, they were a very isolated group and the hegemonic classical <clears throat> psychoanalysis of 1940s through 1970s and even early 80s just had no interest in what Sullivan introduced and his his influence was minimal outside of New York City and the White Institute and NYU postdoctoral and a little bit of the Delphi postdoctoral and in the, somewhat in Washington where, where he started. Uh, so there was no cross-fertilization. The interpersonalists had this kind of rebellious attitude that, uh, you know, we're the, we're, we're the, we're the revolutionaries and uh, we don't really have to read, uh, read the classical literature or try and integrate it. And classical psychoanalysis uh, in general in this country uh, dismissed it as sort of superficial social psychology and or calling it the cultural school, that being a negative connotation, uh, then interpersonal psychoanalysis sort of avoided the nitty-gritty of basic instincts of sex and aggression. And, uh, you know, contemporary psychoanalysis was the journal of the White Institute, and uh, people who identify as interpersonal usually read that journal only, and nobody outside of those interests ever read contemporary psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, my my take is, and I've, I've written about this, that that Greenberg and Mitchell's book in 1983 was the game changer, and that book had such wide success and wide recognition that basically introduced uh, interpersonal perspective to a much much wider audience, and uh, so so began the relational movement, of which interpersonal tradition I think is the most important contributor. Uh, so, Chris, can I add to that? Sure. Um, so, you know, the the problems in American psychoanalysis, and I'm talking about North American psychoanalysis, because I think it becomes clearer and clearer to us as time passes that we have been chauvinistic and ethnocentric in our uh, understanding of psychoanalysis. And these days, um, European and South American psychoanalysis have a lot more currency in American psychoanalytic life. But until recently, psychoanalysis in North America has meant, you know, uh, Freudian and what's now called contemporary Freudian theory, conflict theory, on the one hand, and uh, interpersonal psychoanalysis, and then, as, as Erwin said, relational psychoanalysis on the other. Um, but the, the dividing line has been not only clinical and intellectual, it's also been political. And there's, a, there's an important uh, motivation in, in both uh, those realms to do these books. 
um, in the 40s, and you know, it wasn't just Sullivan. Um, it, for the first generations of interpersonalists, Fromm was just as important to clinical influence as Sullivan. Matter of fact, Fromm was a more important clinical interest than Sullivan. Sullivan was a more important intellectual and collection uh, and um, uh, clinical uh, influence. I mean, um, intellectual and uh, uh, gee, what was the word I was looking for there? Well, anyway, he a uh, conceptual uh, theoretical. Theoretical. He, he was a more important theoretical uh, influence, but Fromm had the had the the uh, commitment to to what you could call humanistic existential uh, values. In fact, the the um, the track at NYU that reflects this kind of thinking is still known as the IH track, the interpersonal humanistic track, uh, and that's largely because of Fromm's influence. I'll tell you just a very brief story. When I finished my training about 1980, I did a survey of the senior analysts at White, who at that point were much older than me. Now I'm their age. Um, And I asked them uh, a number of questions, one of which was, um, who was your most important clinical influence? And all of the senior people said it was from. Hmm. Um, uh, Sullivan, you know, they, they, they acknowledge Sullivan as terribly important, of course. Uh, but Fromm's directness, spontaneity, his unwillingness to sacrifice any vitality uh, in, in what he could create in the clinical setting really inspired these people. Um, so you'll see both the influences of Fromm and Sullivan, as well as the other early interpersonalists in this, the, these two volumes. Uh, that would be from Reichman and uh, Clara Thompson. Um, Ernest Chattel and a few others. Chattel is a little later, but but roughly the same era. Um, Sullivan, uh, incidentally, just to add to what what Irwin said about that, Sullivan w- was really influential in Washington D.C. in the Washington Baltimore area. He was the dominant psychiatric influence in in his time there. Everybody knew who he was, and everybody knew his teachings. But it had not gone um, national, certainly not international. When, when he came to New York to start to teach with his colleagues at the newly formed, uh, it was called the New York Division of the of the Washington School of Psychiatry in 1943. These people started uh, internationalizing his ideas. But he had been highly influential in Washington. Uh, I teach a, a course on interpersonal and relational psychoanalysis at New York Psychoanalytic Institute, and one of the one of the students, and it happens to be in her 80s, and she was saying, she was telling me just the other day how um, uh, how much Sullivan um, had to do with with what everybody thought in those days. Uh, so he was a heavy, very heavy influence on. Well, for example, one of the first generation or second generation of interpersonalists, Harold Searles, is very close to Irwin's heart too. Um, uh, was heavily influenced by by the atmosphere that Sullivan created, and of course at Chestnut Lodge there was also Frieda von Reichman in those days. Yeah, yeah. So there was this uh, first. And, and that influence, I, I think, and unless you don't agree, was largely working analytically with more seriously disturbed patients. Uh, just well, he, he just was. In, you know, his influence though was not. I mean, for example, he influenced Lowell. Um, Lowell uh, was no Sullivanian for sure, but Lowell took several courses with Sullivan. 
uh, and, and you know there were uh, he was uh, a heavy influence on all of psychiatry, from what I understand. I mean, obviously, I wasn't there, but from what I understand, the Washington Baltimore area was was dominated by that uh, by his interpersonal uh, what he called interpersonal psychiatry or interpersonal relations. I mean, Chris, yeah. as you know, he mm-hmm. interpersonal psych. That's right. Interpersonal psychoanalysis was originally interpersonal psychiatry. Well, that's what I'm thinking. There was a. There's kind of, th- in a sense, you're, there's three leaps. There seems to be a big leap from Sullivan, who, who by his own words, practiced psych- psychiatry, and that Clara Thompson, I, I suppose, is the person given credit for taking his work and making it psychoanalysis. And it seems like in your books. The first book is is one leap into the next generation, and then the second book kind of works goes towards the contemporary writers of interpersonal psychoanalysis. But it was an important turning point where I think where Clara Thompson and others formulated Sullivan's work in in the language of psychoanalysis, if I'm correct. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think so because I mean, Clara Thompson was psychoanalytically trained classically in in New York and. Eric, from a psychoanalytic trained classically in, in Berlin, and Sullivan was an autodidact. He was never psychoanalytically trained. And so, you know, our first book called, talks about transference and countertransference, or at least that's the theme. Uh, I mean, Sullivan didn't deal with transference or, or use countertransference particularly. And, uh, uh, and Thompson, I think, was the one primarily Thompson and who integrated him into into what is, is more considered psychoanalysis and the use particularly the use of, of transference. Uh, I, I mean I, I agree wholeheartedly and I would say the same thing uh, if I were saying what you said everyone but to that for those people I'd add I mean they, there were other people of, of her generation who are not remembered the way that they might be. Ralph Crowley, for example, wrote a very, a very wonderful paper called "Human Reactions to, uh, of Analysts to Patients" in in uh, in the about 1950. Ed Tauber um, uh, wrote in the uh, in the early 50s about the use of countertransference in a paper that he was so roundly criticized for that he didn't write that much after that. Um, then there were uh, uh, there were others as well. It turns out that the word, the phrase interpersonal psychoanalysis, Chris, was never even used until 1964, which was the time um, when uh, uh, Maury Green published a book of the selected papers of Clara Thompson. And in casting around for a title for that book, he settled on interpersonal psychoanalysis because he thought, you know, that's what she did, Um, like Irwin said. She pulled this stuff together. She saw that you could pull together um, uh, Fromm's um, more traditional psychoanalytic notions with Sullivan's, which were more radically different, and come up with a psychoanalysis, with a body of work that it would be fair to call psychoanalysis. And I, I agree with Erwin. This was, she saw this, and this was, in a sense, one of her life's projects. I mean, she also was interested in the psychology of women and wrote a lot about that. Um, but that this was one of the very important things about her. Um, the, um, uh, the, the course of history in interpersonal psychoanalysis really, when I got to the Institute, 
White Institute and when training in my in the 1970s, every issue of contemporary psychoanalysis, which is the only place that interpersonalists could um, uh, could uh, publish, because we had been um, blackballed basically from all of the traditional uh, mainstream psychoanalytic journals and had been denied admission to the American Psychoanalytic Association. That was what I meant by political before. Um, and so every time there was an issue that came out, we excitedly looked to see what papers would be published by Wolstein and Levinson, who, who I think the two of them, Erwin, uh, I don't know, I think you'd agree with this, the two of them really uh, established um, uh, interpersonal psychoanalysis as what it became um, and because of their, you know, their, their doctrine, their understanding of you, you can't not interact with the patient. You're always unconsciously involved. Oh, I would definitely, definitely agree. I, I would add Erwin Singer to, to, to a somewhat lesser extent. Uh, and Harold Searles. And Harold Searles, yes. Uh, but, but both Levinson and, and Wallstein were enormously influenced by Clara Thompson. Uh, yeah. I know, I, know, mm -hmm. I know she was Wallstein's analyst. I don't, is she Levinson's analyst or supervisor? No, but, but he, he was, uh, he was fairly well acquainted with her. I think she yeah. supervised him. Uh, I think in the in the books, especially in the in the first volume, or certainly the second two, there are certain concepts that are uh, illustrated um, about about interpersonal psychoanalysis, and um, and uh, not everyone I think may be familiar with how interpersonal psychoanalysis differs, other than I think what you said, Erwin, that that it was kind of considered more more lighter or social psychology. Uh, but uh, Donnell, in the, in the first volume, you have a, a list of ways that uh, interpersonal psychoanalysis differed uh, or differs from classical analysis. I'm going to kind of read a couple of things here. Uh, from that and says um, it's different in terms of edible conflict, the inevitability of transference neurosis, uh, the insistence on defining psychoanalysis as the application of a single technique, um, penis envy, uh, death instinct, drive theory in general, uh, de-emphasis uh, of real experience with real people, um, and, uh, and also with theories of libido and rigidly unfolding psychosexual stages. Uh, you can imagine that as kind of like kind of a shot across the bow against uh, classical analysis in the sense of kind of maybe it would be helpful to think of what's left. What does, what does interpersonal psychoanalysis uh, espouse? What does it keep and what does it kind of um, uh, you know, stand for? Well, Chris, before we do that, let, let me just go back to the list that you read because it's really important to, to emphasize that the difference was not that these things were all being thrown out. Mm -hmm. The difference was the idea that they were inevitable in each person's life. That they were that they were organizing principles that you could find in every single life. You know, there used to be a joke that was told about um, about psychoanalysts. Uh, the the old psychoanalyst says uh, says yeah. He said you know I I. I, I analyzed the guy's Oedipus complex. It's not my fault he didn't get better. <laughs> you know that, and that—that's yeah. what that conveys the attitude that everybody is basically the same in their interpsychic world, and it's a matter of making that clear. Um, Erwin can talk about this. He has written about it actually quite a bit. Um, 
But, you know, the, the idea was to individualize the understanding of people and make it specific to the transference, counter-transference as well. That what, what comes up between two people in the analytic situation, especially the unconscious parts of it, that can be revealed and, and explicated, understood, felt, felt directly, um, are, those are particular to the, the relationships they've had in their lives, um, especially the ones early on. And that's what needs to be done rather than to offer interpretations as packets of information that are passed across the room from the analyst to the patient. There's something more immediately experiential going on. Yeah, and in that regard, there, from the beginning, there was a skepticism about universal theories. That is, as Don said, theories that are applied to everyone. And, uh, and I don't think anyone more than, than Benjamin Wallstein has made this the centerpiece of his uh, of his work because number one he was very skeptical about metapsychology any kind of metapsychology there was an interpersonal effort to sort of be atheoretical which is of course impossible but to veer toward minimizing theory where the classical psychoanalysts was a very theory strong uh, way of uh, ethos uh, but. Wolstein's credo was each patient is unique, each analyst is unique, each diet is unique. And basically, I don't want to, I don't want to assume anything about you uh, until I get to know you personally. Uh, and this analysis is not going to be exactly the same, and the interpretive schema is not going to be the same as uh, the, the guy I saw the session before you. Uh, so the idea of, uh, you know, in a sense, being ignorant. You know, Don has written a great deal about the curiosity, the virtue of curiosity, and curiosity comes from a certain degree of ignorance. I, I don't know you. I don't know if you have an Oedipal complex. I can't assume you do or, you know, have civil rivalry or any, any of that. Uh, and, and so I think that... Uh, that was, was an important tone set uh, in, you know, in the interpersonal world. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of fundamental, I guess, uh, ideas that are presented in the book. I, each writer uh, has, in a sense, has some of them. Like uh, Harold Searle seems to, uh, one of the ideas, uh, beside, of course, using his counter-transference, using his, his own self, uh, but also the idea of the patient uh, as an adult, the patient who can handle something uh, rather than kind of being uh, developmentally uh, at a certain stage. Uh, also, kind of, you could see a lot of the writers grappling with the sense of what, what is the unconscious. You know, uh, I think in the classical sense, the unconscious was kind of interpreted by the analyst, and that in the interpersonal uh, paradigm, it's more kind of something that goes on between people and is and, and is enacted. Uh, so that seems to be an important idea that a lot of the writers, especially in the first volume, are struggling with. Um, uh, ideas about self-disclosure, Darlene Ehrenberg certainly speaks to that. So it, it seems like there, there are writers kind of trying to uh, formulate a certain theory. Uh, like, it's not that there isn't a theory in interpersonal psychoanalysis, there seems to be, uh, but trying to delineate their own theory as opposed to classical psychoanalysis. Well, you know, the, the, the theory revolves around the nature of the interpersonal field. 
And you have to remember how different psychoanalysis was in 1940, 1940, 1945. The idea of the interpersonal field was just not formulated, except by the beginnings of these, the writings of these people. Uh, neither was the idea of, of the significance of the analyst subjectivity. You know, the title of um, the book, uh, uh, of the, the, uh, Irwin's um, uh, selected papers, is the interpersonal tradition, and then the, the subtitle is the origins of psychoanalytic subjectivity. That's not by accident. Um, the the notion that the subjectivity of the analyst and the subjectivity of the patient and how they relate to one another in the field was really new. Uh, at this point, um, there are still big differences, and you know I teach at conservative institutes, not that infrequently. I see them all the time. They think that it's this, uh, quite often. They think that they understand it. It turns out they really don't, and they're kind of shocked to find out how different it still is. However, the reason they're shocked is because um, they've been led to believe that psychoanalysis has been interpersonalized. And, you know, there, there's a way in which that's true. There's a way in which these ideas are now uh, not anathema the way they were. Um, and that's shown uh, in the in in, in uh, clinical and intellectual writings, but also in the politics of the field. You know, some years ago, uh, after many years of of trouble about this, in which uh, the American Psychoanalytic Association um, uh, required ridiculous changes in order for the White Institute to join it, instead they they. Uh, the American Psychoanalytic Institute unanimously invited the White Institute to join with no changes. So that that actually, there was some debate about it because it wasn't a slam dunk, but uh, it eventually was accepted. And, and we now do uh, talk with them, I think, in a different way than we used to. Nevertheless, these differences about the field persevere. Yeah, I mean, it's evident. I mean, you know, Don is teaching a course at the New York Psychoanalytic, and he's on the editorial boards of a couple of the most classical journals. That uh, That's a fairly recent phenomenon. That's stuff like that happened there at the American Psychoanalytic meetings. There are a number of interpersonal people, interpersonal relational people who present, uh, you know, quite quite frequently. Uh, I can remember back in the, uh, in the 80s when it was just beginning to happen, when I would see um, that uh, the Steve Mitchell or uh, Ed Levinson had a paper in a journal that would never even have allowed our papers to be reviewed. We're publishing those papers. It was thrilling. Uh, it was thrilling. I had I had mixed feelings about being thrilled because there's a little bit of <laughs> there's a little bit of the identification with the aggressor in there, right? But but I was thrilled because I, I it had been so distressing. That my teachers had not been able to uh, to to garner the admiration and respect that they deserved. Yeah, I, it, it, how how would you say that um, that you chose the articles for the book based on this? Like, did you choose them to illustrate particular concepts? Or, and and it must have been difficult. There, it actually is a a large amount of. Um, interpersonal writing. So, how were you able to pare it down? How did you do it between the two of you? Well, there's, you want to go, Erwin? There's an overlap in the two books. I think six. I think six or seven of the uh, 
articles are written in the, by the same people, uh, and you know that there, six or six or seven people appear uh, in both volumes. Uh, and Ocean Stern being two of them. Yes. Yes. yes your own articles are included. There, there is absolutely no bias in choosing our own work to. Appear. Not at all. It's, it's purely, purely an objective decision. Uh, and uh, otherwise, we just put our heads together and uh, we to try to find articles that seem to, you know, be uh, be among the most profound written by people identified as, as interpersonal. Uh, but of course, we also there are some people uh, who were known as uh, important contributors to the literature who published a good deal. And, and we, we, we wanted to get them in, you know, in the first volume, you know, people like Joseph Barnett and David Schechter in the second volume, people like John Fiscalini or Mark Bleschner. Uh, yeah, and we were looking huge. for articles of theirs that, you know, we thought was the best of their, of, of their work. And so it was a combination, really, Chris. We, we, we started off with a bunch of names of people who needed to be represented in volumes that had this purpose, and then we would pick some paper that satisfied a compromise between significance and the kind of length we could manage in the book, and we would choose that article. And then there were, there were some papers that were written by people who haven't written a ton, but they just had great significance. For example, Kathy White's paper on racism. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the just, that, that, that's a standout paper. Um, and so there were a few papers that we picked that way. Yeah, Roberta, Roberta, Roberta Hill Weiss, who, who died too, yeah. so young, but would have written a great deal, had a terrific paper. And, you know, she wasn't known and had published much because she died prematurely. Yeah, I, uh, I was familiar. I'm, I'm familiar with the interpersonal literature. I was able, I knew a lot of the articles, but uh, just the other day I did go over and read and read the Roberta Held Weiss article. is just it's a it's an incredible article. It's a, it is such yeah. a find. Yeah. Well, you know, we actually she was she was uh, she died at I think 54, um, and uh, had just started her writing career, um, and she she. Um, we have a, 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 a named lectureship in which a scholar every year comes to the White Institute uh, called the Roberta Held Weiss Scholar, serves as the scholar for the year, and writes a paper which is delivered to the, to the Society of White Graduates. Uh, Precisely because she, she was recognized as someone whose life was tragically cut short but had immense talent. Yeah. Uh, it seems like the, one of the other great shifts on Irwin, you mentioned it, uh, was the was the relational shift when uh, uh, the Greenberg and Mitchell book came out. I believe it was 1983, uh, and and it. I guess some. I guess part of the reasons you wrote this book was because it seems like the interpersonal tradition was was being subsumed into the relational tradition and you wanted to kind of make it more distinctive and and I know this is a, a kind of a lengthy uh, you know could be a lengthy discussion in itself but but maybe to delineate between the two might be helpful or to kind of say where interpersonal the interpersonal tradition stands now in relation to the relational position yeah well I mean, I, I'm not sure Don and I see this exactly the same, but we've both written about it, so but let me 
say say where what I think. I I I think the interpersonal tradition was the most important con contributor to the broader relational tradition. Relational psychoanalysis is an umbrella term, or they call it the big tent. It in, includes a whole bunch of perspectives that have some important things in common. Most importantly, they are not dry theories. Uh, so primary among them are Kleinians and object relations, you know, middle school object relations, self-psychology, attachment theory. Uh, and there, first of all, Greenberg and Mitchell coined the term, were both trained interpersonally at the White Institute, even in their doctoral degrees at NYU, they had enormous, enormously exposed to interpersonal influence. Uh, but um, I think, I don't know whether, whether you'd agree, Erwin, that your the introduction that you wrote is focused around this question, but actually, Chris, the introduction I wrote is focused around precisely this question. Mm -hmm. um, it, yes. it takes the position that uh, the differences between between uh, interpersonal psychoanalysis and contemporary Freudian psychoanalysis today are less important in establishing um, whether or not interpersonal psychoanalysis is a unique intellectual and clinical venture than the differences between interpersonal and relational psychoanalysis. Um, the, I wrote a long introduction in which that was the I've written about it before in other places too, but this this was the most recent one and maybe the most complete. Um, uh, you know uh, what I say. I'll just read you a couple lines, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I have argued that radical field theory leads to a number of outcomes: a de-emphasis on unconscious fantasy and repressed memories as templates for conscious experience, an emphasis on fantasy as mystified experience, a correspondingly greater emphasis on the embeddedness of the past in the forms of the present, as opposed to existing separately in the mind, and, and most of all, the continuous unconscious mutual influence of the subjectivities of analyst and patient on one another. It goes without saying, though, that the last of these points, while it did originate in interpersonal psychoanalysis, and there I cite Irwin, is shared today by all relational analysts. When this point is combined with the positions I've outlined about fantasy, memory, and the past and the present, and the existential humanistic sense of the emotional immediacy of the psychoanalytic situation, the result is what I hope, what I believe, is a coherent psychoanalytic perspective. And then it's our hope that this is the view that will inform your reading of the essays. Hmm. And I think both of us, both Don and I would agree, Chris, that many people who identify as relational, who, who've been trained uh, at NYU postdoctoral in the relational track, uh, many, many of them are completely indistinguishable from interpersonal. That is, you know, in a blind taste test, one could not tell the difference. But there are other traditions within relational that are really quite different, particularly in terms of the, how therapy is conducted. And so uh, those people identify as relational uh, and come from a tradition or most influenced by a Winnicottian tradition or a Cohutian 
tradition are are really different in many many ways than those people who call themselves relational and are you know influenced by the uh, you know by the interpersonal group. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. There are there are different groups within the relational relational group, and you know, I mean, I know Chris, I know you're aware of this. But don't forget, or our listeners maybe that. Um, when Steve Mitchell formulated relational psychoanalysis, while he did say that the interpersonal point of view, as far as he was concerned, was the most important tributary, that he also was including object relations in a broad sense and um, uh, self-psychology. So... Well, that, so there's still room for differentiation, I think. Uh, well, it does seem that... I mean, that there, 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 are, there are people... I mean, Don, for instance, or Phil Bromberg, or, or, or myself would say, you know, and Steve Mitchell said that, not on the record, but off the record, that, you know, he's both relational and interpersonal. It's sort of interpersonal slash relational or relational slash interpersonal, but it could be relational slash Winnicottian, relational slash uh, self-psychological. I always identify myself as interpersonal, relational, and and Philip does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you you pro do you do that, Erwin? I don't remember. Yeah. Usually you do too. Yeah. Mm. So so right, it it goes under that big umbrella. Then a lot of people just feel like it's it, it it's kind of a necess- It's almost necessary to identify yourselves with both. Um, it's uh, kind of a it just ex- the relational um, movement, relational orientation seems to really expand on the interpersonal work. Um, well, you know, I, I don't think that's quite right. I think it's a, it certainly used the interpersonal work, but um, it, to say that it expanded on it is, I would say that they're, they're different points of view. Mm-hmm. They're quite closely related, and I wouldn't want anybody in either group to think that I didn't feel that I belonged to both. Right. What's the um? What's the? I was thinking also relate the relational influence seems to be more international in scope. We, we recently had a podcast uh, here, and it was our most popular podcast that 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 we've had so far. That was focused, I guess, uh, most on Lacanian and Kleinian uh, theories, which seems to kind of almost be, in a way. Um, either a resurgence or a kind of a pushback against the idea of drive theory and kind of notions of where the unconscious lays, that it seems to be quite popular, if not, I, I, I think, in the United States, but also elsewhere, um, as opposed to the interpersonal thinking that, uh, that there seems to be a lot of, still a lot of drive theorists out there. Yeah, sure. John, you probably know more about that than me, but yes, I think Lacan and Dion are, you know, probably have more international influence than uh, any any other two theorists and uh and Klein, the three of them and, mm-hmm, yeah yeah mm-hmm. though though the relational group is you know has a big international following too you know in australia and israel and uh italy uh you know the the um the uh, International Association of Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, IR, is about the same size as the American Psychoanalytic Association. Oh, is it? No, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know um, 
it's it, but it's it's spread all over the world which whereas uh whereas um you know the jap uh, the, the apsa is american psychoanalytic association is all here but if you looked at psychoanalysis around the world that's what i meant earlier when i said i think we've been terribly ethnocentric um you know it's uh uh, the world has been going on without us in a way that has been quite fine with them. And as far as I'm concerned, we need to catch up. Well, so do they, because they they really don't know us. But we have begun to know them. And and we should. We all belong to the same field. We We have so much more to do with one another's ideas than any of us have to do with the ideas of people in any other field. Nevertheless, there are big differences. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. I, I'm I'm quite happy with pluralism. Uh, what is the future of interpersonal psychoanalysis? Where do you think it's going? I think the second volume, especially, uh, shows some of the direction uh, that that it, that it's pointed in. So, uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Darwin, I don't know. You got a thought? No, I. I... I, I don't know other than saying in a, a kind of an elaboration on what's already been there. I don't, I don't know that I could answer that question specifically. I, I'm still sort of stuck on your last question, uh, mm-hmm. which Don referred to as, as pluralism. Uh, personally, it kind of daunts me that... Uh, that was the most successful podcast and it would be more successful than some interpersonal podcast because to me to me interpersonal psychoanalysis is is sort of the the most and some of relational psychoanalysis is is the most uh, anti-metapsychology and anti-strong theory and and I, I, I do think you know, citing Eric from and Escape from Freedom, that there is enormous appeal to much more structured theories and and much more st- strong theories, which in in a way uh, make one have a clear script on how one works. And I I think it's sort of a common human desire to have that sort of clarity and uh, I account for, for that uh, that interest uh, in, in that way and you know I don't, I don't, I don't like it <laughs> it's hard to say I don't like pluralism because that doesn't sound so good but, but I, I, I don't like that there's still an interest toward highly technical theoretical points of view because it feels more structured and more like science. Well, it does seem to me from some of the writing in the book that it does seem to be getting a little more uh, theoretical. Maybe, I don't know if that's, if Erwin, if you would say that's a good thing or not, but that I always felt that the uh, one of the ideas of the interpersonal thinking was that... Um, uh, was that the, that that advanced or kind of very abstract theories were really for the benefit of the ana- of the analyst, not for the patient, and that that was kind of part of the reason uh, not to not to adhere to strong metapsychology. Although it, you know, like I said, it does seem like it might be shifting a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, 
uh, I, it might be, uh, but I, I don't draw the same um, the same lines that that Irwin would or um, Ed Levinson would uh, around you know so called or that you would Chris mm-hmm. around strong metapsychology versus weak metapsychology. I, I, I mean I, I don't really see, see how you can't you, you need to be able to conceive the ideas the structure any coherent perspective in psychoanalysis, whether you want to call those ideas or you you want to call them values or you want to call them theories, um, you know, they're they're different, but they all have that same agglutinizing, uh, you know, cohering uh, effect on the ideas that they contain or that they hold together. I don't don't have the sense that, um, that there's an essential difference between well, for example, I, I'm a great admirer of Ed's writing. Um, Ed, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I might say that Ed's the Ed Levinson. Most, yes, Ed Levinson. He, I might say he's the single most influential living analyst on on my thinking. Um, but even though that's true, uh, I don't agree with him when he characterizes his own work as not very theoretical by comparison to other people's. I think he's he's a wonderful writer and a hell of a lot better writer than 99% of the other people in our field. And that it can appear that he's writing about, you know, everyday experience without there being anything uh, imposed upon it. But I, I don't think I think that's right. Yeah, I would, I would say it's, it's a much less complicated theory. Uh, I, I agree there has to be, there is inevitably some theory but what's, what's, for me, what's the theory? The theory is that we all become who we are because of our history of interpersonal relationships and the internalization of those relationships. And fundamentally, we are unconsciously motivated by those internalizations that have never been formulated, to use a term that now is central to psychoanalytic thinking, started by Don, originated with Don. That's a very loose theory, uh, because each internal, each each person internalizes very different people from their familiar world, uh, and, and that feels like a much broader, looser, non-specific theory than Dion's uh, theory, you know, for instance, which. Well, I don't know. Beyond later theory, he gets he gets downright mystical. Um, I mean, I, I he's he's not he's he's very loose. It's really just his early theory that that isn't. But leave that aside. If I accept your use of the word loose, that's okay with me. I can accept that. It just a loose theory is no less a theory. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I mean, I, I'm in the midst to tell you the truth. I'm reading Lacan with some of my study groups. And I, I don't agree with it at all. Mm-hmm. But I, I must say that I find it exhilarating to, to, to grasp the relationships between, you know, this, this, what was going on in this guy's mind was really interesting. But I agree with you. It's not the way I want to work. I want to work according to interpersonal principles. So it's clear that within the interpersonal school, the interpersonal tradition, there can be a lot of disagreement. Uh, and uh, it's a, there are a lot of ways to be an interpersonalist. 
But it always was because all the problems so, were different. They were so different. Uh, that's true. Described earlier, Selvin and Trump were profoundly different, and and. and I agree with Don's earlier comment that the Trump's clinical influence is much greater than Sullivan's, but Sullivan did have, at least in the early days, some significant clinical influence, and it had uh, issued detailed inquiry and the avoidance of addressing transference themes. And uh, I mean, there there are still some Sullivanians around, so. Mm. So we're coming to the end of our of our time. So I just wanted to give you a chance to add anything you feel that we didn't get to or um, left out. Uh, anything that you'd like to say? Well, one one thing that has always been very important to me in terms of why interpersonal psychoanalysis has always appealed to me. In in addition, and what's unique, I believe, what's most what's unique about it, in addition to what Don described a few minutes back is the question of hierarchy. Uh, you know, we are all more simply human than otherwise. Uh, speaks to participant observation, that the analytic relationship is one between two subjective co-participants, between two flawed co-participants. And, and so the, the turn in psychoanalysis started with Sullivan's participant observation is that the analyst is a subjective other, and by definition, obviously not an objective other, and obviously by definition, not a healthier, saner other. Uh, and that collapse of hierarchy, because of issues in my own personal life growing up, has always been always been very important to me, and, and always a big part of my what I write about in my embrace of, of the interpersonal uh, tradition. Well, I, I uh, th this is something that that Irwin has, you know, conveyed to me uh, for many years, and I, I couldn't agree with it anymore. I do. Um, if you ask me what um, what I have left to say, it might be something about the future that you mentioned before, which is that uh, I think. Um, I think that, that the, the idea of the, of the field, whether it's not always the interpersonal field, and for example, in Italy they call it the, the, the bipersonal field or the joint unconscious fantasy, which is a very different thing. But there is a greater uh, understanding and acceptance in the world at large of the, uh, of the idea of the field being inevitable, that these are two individual real people dealing with one another in ways that have to do with their own unconsciouses, uh, going back to really to frenzy. Um, and uh, it, it, frenzy then grew up through the interpersonalists. He came through the interpersonalists to us. But what I think is that the interpersonal view is still by far the most thoroughly bidirectional, um, reciprocal understanding of the field that exists. If we had time, I'd say something about, you know, the work of Farrow and Chivaturese, which I, which I admire and I'm very interested in. But something about, I've written about this, about how, how it, it's, it's not really reciprocal because the projective identifications are only supposed to go in one direction. That's not true in interpersonal psychoanalysis in which the clinical situation is a two-way street. It's a level playing field 
the analyst is involved with the patient in the same way that the patient's involved with the analyst. The difference is the roles they occupy, not anything else. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I wish Don, I Don wrote two terrific papers in psychoanalytic dialogues comparing you know, the, the, the different field theorists. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, we could certainly go on much longer. There's so much uh, more to cover, but we do have to to, to end here. Uh, I just wanted to say it's, there, there are two great books for anyone in any orientation to read, uh, and they're, they're just, uh, I think, essential for almost anyone doing clinical work. So I just have to thank you for, for doing this, for putting the books together. Well, thank, thank you, you for, for doing, doing, this. doing this and for interviewing us and, and uh, doing doing public relations for us. That's much much appreciated. Sure, much we'd appreciated. Be, sure, thank you. Uh, we've been speaking to uh, Dr. Owen Hirsch and Dr. Donald Stern, uh, the writers of uh, the series of books, uh, "The Interpersonal Perspective in Psychoanalysis" from the 1960s to the 1990s, and then from the 1980s to the 2010s. Uh, thanks so much. This has been Chris Bandini, and uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>